So I, I know you've got a lot going on. But remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. The fact of my life is wherever you are at the moment, it took every bit, every second, every split second of your life to get there. It's gone. You did it. It's over. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Listen, little girl, respect is for the dead. The living need dough. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. I think he's going through male menopause. And need to talk about more. We don't often talk about death, sex, and money. I'm Anna Sale. My name is Norman Lear. I was born uh, on the 27th of July, 1922. Uh, which makes me 93, if I'm counting correctly. Norman Lear is the TV writer and producer behind iconic sitcoms like The Jeffersons, All in the Family, Good Times, and Maud. Carol, you want to move? Then move. You mean that? No. <laughs> His shows took real life and put it on the small screen. All right, we both own a house, we both own a furniture, we both own a window, half and half. I want my half closed. <laughs> And they became some of the most watched TV programs of the 70s and 80s. Hold it, Diane. We are the Jeffersons. (laughs) Norman spends most of his time in Southern California. But I talked with him a few weeks ago in the luxury building in Manhattan, where he has an apartment. It's been called New York's most exclusive address. I wanted to be able to say to my kids, not you will not want for anything at all far from that, but you will not be desperate for a dollar. And uh, that meant different things along the way. You know, probably when I was a kid, it meant if you had $200,000, you were not going to be desperate. And uh, along with the times, the number increased. It's now $60 billion. That's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> Norman's worth an estimated $700 million now, according to Inside Philanthropy. But growing up, he didn't have much. His father was arrested when Norman was a kid for selling fake bonds. When my father was hauled off, I was nine years old, he, to prison, served three years. And uh, my mother was selling all the furniture because she felt we couldn't live any longer in that much shame. And, and she needed the money and God knows what. 
so the evening he was taken away, she had people over and they were buying furniture. And she was selling my dad's red leather chair. And that hurt more than anything. And in the middle of all of that, some horse's ass of a neighbor or a relative or something, an adult, put his hand on my shoulder and said, you're the man of the house now. And uh, I don't know whether in that instant or the next morning or, but reflecting on it, certainly, I thought, my God, how funny, strange that is, you know. And then, and then he said, ah, the man of the house doesn't cry. Did your dad ever tell you why he went to prison? Did he speak to you directly about it? Well, I read the paper. I knew why he went to prison. And my mother had said to him, I don't like those men, Herman. Don't go with those men. She tried to warn him. Nobody ever told Herman anything. He, I've been everywhere where the grass goes green, and I know everything he used to say. I adored my father. I continue to love him despite all the difficulty, uh, because he leaned into life. He ate it up, you know. And uh, whatever was going wrong, he was, you know, going to turn it around in the next 20 minutes. In two days to two weeks, he was going to have a million dollars, always. And when, when you think about how your father was trying to raise you as a young man... What did he teach you about what it was to be a man? Well, now we're getting into uh, the sex part because uh, the one thing I can remember, uh, a couple of things, uh, advice that he gave me. Norman, he said, never take a wet deck. He had been in the Navy. Now, a wet deck in his terminology meant, you know, three guys are going to have sex with the same woman. You be first. So pretty That's, vulgar advice. Yeah, pretty. Uh, uh, and then at one point, I was driving a good humor truck, came home at 11, 11.30 at night. He leaned out of the bedroom window and threw me the keys to the car and said, why don't you and Sid, that was a friend of mine, why don't you and Sid go up to Troy and get laid? Uh, he thought it was time that I thought about that. So, you know, I don't, I don't like saying what I heard myself say uh, because out of affection for him. Poor bastard. I mean, this is what he knew. Did you go to Troy? We went to Troy. Yeah. We, were, we, <laughs> we spent an hour driving around Troy. Got there about 4 o'clock or something in the morning. Uh, looking for red lights uh, because it was supposed to be notorious for a red light. There's no, no such thing, at least not for us. Norman's father died in 1957, but he kept showing up in Norman's work for decades after. When Archie yelled at Edith to stifle during an argument on All in the Family. Now stifle yourself, will you? Oh, that's a terrible thing to say. That's what Herman Lear used to yell at Norman's mother. I used to sit at the kitchen table, and I would score their arguments. Norman's father also showed up in the psychiatrist's office with B. Arthur on Maud. The man never gave me one decent moment, not one. Maybe one. 
that was a real uh, experience in my life. I rewrote it. When it came to a grandstand play, he was good at it. I was dating my first wife, who be- the woman who became my first wife. I was going to pick her up in West Hartford in my car, which was a Model T or some of an ancient car we paid $35 for or something. And uh, my father was driving a, uh, a Hudson Terraplane, new car at the time. And he was going to come home. He said, uh, you take my car. So he was due home at, say, 3 and then 4. And, and finally I left and drove through Meriden and Waterbury and all that distance away from Hartford. There's suddenly a honk, honk, honk behind me. And my father has caught up with me in the Terraplane. And we exchanged cars, and uh, and I take my girl to uh, to the theater properly, and that was a giant. Uh, that was, you know, it overwhelmed me. So I wanted to do that with Maud. She came into a psychiatrist's office. Anyway, the thing is, I can't believe I'm here. I mean. Me, Maud Findlay, actually talking to a psychiatrist. And then she remembered something about her father. And then he broke every traffic law in the books so that he could get there in time to give me this coat with the Persian lamb collar so that I could wear it to the prom. It was the same kind of grandstand gesture. And Maud crying on the couch, said, what am I talking about? I loved my father. Oh, how could I have forgotten a thing like that? She had previously said, I guess, doctor, this will be the last time I see you. Anyway, after realizing that she loved him after all, she got up and walked to the door (laughs) and turned around. And the way she said, See you Friday. Oh, my God. How I treasure that. (laughs) Coming up, what Norman learned from the generation after him, his children. Is there a blind spot that you've had that your children have revealed to you? I'm sure. I, you know, I will reflexively uh, jump, leap to a liberal position before I have thought it through. We noticed last week that it was exactly a year ago that our episode with actress Ellen Burstyn came out. It's one of my favorites. So this week, I called her for an update. People have talked to me on the street. I actually had somebody say, I've been practicing shouldless days. And I Yay. said, oh, that's great. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so glad I was a good influence. That's awesome to hear, especially on the streets of New York City, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how have you been in the last year? Oh, God, it's just been the busiest year of my life. I did not expect age 82 to be the busiest year of my life. I just got home from, actually, Shreveport. And while I was in Shreveport, I was shooting a wonderful um, independent film called The Tale, T-A-L-E, with Laura Dern. 
the week before, I was in Baltimore shooting uh, another episode of The House of Cards. Oh. I think I've done five for this new season. I can't remember if it's four or five. I think it's five. I also did an appearance on Alice and Janney's new show called Mom, which I just love. She mm -hmm. has a half-hour comedy that's wonderful. And uh, that'll air November 5th, I understand, which unfortunately um, I'm not going to see because I'll be on a plane to Oslo. <laughs> <laughs> I got asked if I would accept a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Stockholm Film Festival. And seeing as how that first thing on my bucket list, number one, was to see the fjords of Norway. So that's close enough to Stockholm <laughs> to say yes. So you're going to see the fjords and get a Lifetime Achievement Award in one trip. Yeah. <laughs> that's really living up the bucket list, I got to say. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think, you know, if you want to go to the places that are on your bucket list, you have to call in some really strange shots. <laughs> <laughs> when was your last... Should list day. Actually, it was Saturday because I got home because of storms and connections. I got at the airport in Shreveport at 6.15 in the morning on Friday, and I got home at 11 o'clock at night. So Saturday became my should list day. I don't even think I took my dog for a walk. I had a dog walker for that day. <laughs> That's an incredible indulgence. Still have the dog walker come. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, and I also did two other films. One called Wiener Dog. Uh-huh. <laughs> written and directed by Todd Solance, who's a wonderful uh -huh. filmmaker. And another one called Custody. Those will all be out next year. So I, I hope I'll be able to just sit back and let them play without me. Not have to do too much. Thank you, Miss Burston, for your time again. It's such a privilege to get to talk to you. You're welcome. Thank you for calling me. Oh, Ellen. You can find our episode with her at our website, deathsexmoney.org. On the next episode... Hi, Anna and the Death Sex and Money team. This is Caroline in St. Paul, and I'm responding to your inquiry about the people who aren't having sex, um, and I'm one of them. Your stories about why you're not having sex. This dry spell started out as a choice. I had a, a messy breakup, um, but that was almost five years ago. And while I'm fine with it, I would also like for a change to happen. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. 
And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. I'm Shankar Vedantam, here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? How can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. A decade before Norman Lear started working in television, he began another career as a soldier. When Norman was a sophomore at Emerson College, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. You enlisted when you were a college student? I did. Which is not something you hear of happening in 2015, to leave college? <laughs> Certainly we don't see people like me and you enlisting. Yeah. And uh, probably 90% of your listeners are not enlisting. Kids who are hungry for something that makes for a career. Uh, or to learn something or to have the comfort of a dollar uh, are enlisting. And you served in Europe during World War II? Yeah. Do you think back on your time in Europe often, or does that feel like a long time ago? My wife and I, Lynn and I, were in Berlin three weeks ago. Flying into Berlin was an experience I don't have the words for because I had bombed, I had been in a plane bombing it twice. I have no way of expressing what I, what I felt except remembering how I didn't care when I saw the bombs drop uh, and then gather with the bombs from other planes and I'm looking at a hundred, if not thousands, of bombs falling and thinking they might, not might, probably are going to fall on farms or co-ops or where innocent people are going to get killed. And, uh, and I didn't care. And then thinking about that hours later or days later, I don't know when, often wondering if anybody gave me a piece of paper and said, sign this, that you're somebody who would never give a shit how many people were killed innocently down there. I have to believe I would never sign it. But I do remember feeling it. The feeling was, screw them. Yeah. You know? 
Uh, I mean, to make it a little clearer, if somebody harmed my one of my children, I know I could drive four hours and kill the son of a bitch in front of his family. Uh, now, that's a feeling I just shared with you that's total. But I want to believe I could never do it. But I'm expressing something that's there. Norman has six children from all three of his marriages. There was one daughter uh, at the end of my first marriage and three at the end of my second marriage and three more children in my third marriage. I have five uh, daughters and one son. The daughters range from, I love saying this, uh, from 20 to 69. And wow. uh, I mean, when you say that, that's, inc- that's incredible. I know, it's quite a, sp- <laughs> quite a spread. Do you think you were a different sort of father to your children since you had them at such different points in your life? Looking back, I wasn't an ever-present. I was much more an ever-present father to my television shows. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've learned not to regret. If I had it to do over again, I think I would lean the other way. Norman met the mother of his three youngest children, Lynn, in 1984. At the time, Norman and his second wife, Frances, were separated. I was determined not to divorce, and so I caused Frances to divorce me. They were spending the weekdays apart and trying to make it work on the weekends. That's how I met Lynn. One of those weekends when we were trying to work it out, uh, we had a dinner party, and... uh, and one of the guests called and said he had a blind date. Could he bring her? So I met Lynn at my front door. Why, after getting divorced once and feeling like it was a good decision, why why did you not want to get divorced I don't again? Know, something to do with my children. I don't. I don't know. He had to explain everything, <laughs> my own behavior all the time. But what I've told myself is. Uh, Foolishly, the grown children. I wouldn't uh, do that to them. And Lynn, I want to know more about Lynn. She she is a student of psychology. She's twenty five years younger than you. You were you were famous when she met you. I was well known. Yeah. And we're, she is twenty five years younger, which never seemed to matter at all. What struck you about her? Uh, she was deeply spiritual, deeply spiritual. And uh, I was not, my family was not religious as, as Jews. I was by mitzvah, but that was kind of you know, more tradition than religion. And we hit it off on uh, these weekends of, uh, of uh, spiritual conversation. You know, we never stopped talking about what's it all about, Alfie. And uh, and it's still the best conversation going, and nobody knows, in my opinion. Did you want to become a father again when you married Lynn? Did you want to have a, uh, more children? Well, I, we had talked about that, and I knew that 
you know, I had agreed I would become a father because she just had to have a child. What I didn't expect was that she would want more children. But by the time she wanted another child, I was thinking, and my son, which is a big surprise to me, uh, by then, you know, when he was a couple of years old, I thought his life would be happier if he grew up with another kid in the house. And then we had twins. You were having your first child with Lynn when your older children were of childbearing age. Yeah. And what was that like? Very difficult. My, my uh, middle daughter was, uh, you know, had for four or five years been hoping, wishing, trying to be pregnant. And uh, her dad is suddenly married to a younger woman, and in a year's time or less, she's pregnant. And that happened before my daughter got pregnant. So that was not an easy time. But I can tell you today, we have Thanksgiving and Christmas coming, and we'll all be together as a result of everybody wishing to be together. How, what was that, what's that process been like of trying to make sure that your kids, who, some of whom have different moms, that they have a relationship together? and that they're close. Like, how have you, how has that unfolded over the years? I don't know, good love. Uh, they've spent time together and fallen in love with each other. I mean, and that's, hasn't, that, that part hasn't been tough. It grew naturally. talking to your family about death and your death? That's a conversation that hasn't started. I haven't talked to them about that. Uh, I can see that, uh, you know, the way they express themselves and the, the, uh, uh, the way they reach to help me physically and so forth. <laughs> uh, I can see that it's on my kid's mind. I haven't brought myself to talk about that. I think, I don't, I don't feel near that, you know. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not someone who's afraid of it. I think it's interesting that, uh, that we approach it, at least this is my point of view, not knowing. You know, my wife, Lynn, will tell you something greater, better is next. She is thoroughly convinced that we go on from here. Uh, I am thoroughly convinced that that's possible, but uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm content that, you know, we're going to get a lot of answers to the deepest questions uh, at death, or not, <laughs> or not. <laughs> That's Norman Lear. 
His memoir, Even This I Get to Experience, is now available in paperback. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC. The team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Boteen, James Ramsey, Destry Sibley, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. And I want to ask you to please leave us a review on iTunes because it helps other people find the show. Norman Lear thanks a lot of people at the end of his book, including his barber, Little Joe. He's been cutting Norman's hair for 50 years. Little Joe Chernueva, yeah, he used to come up at uh, Thanksgiving when we were all together and uh, spend Thanksgiving morning cutting hair. We'd all sit around watching him cut this individual, then that individual. We had a ball. There isn't anybody in my family that doesn't know Little Joe. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. So I I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.